Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Let us pray. Father in heaven, speak to us now from your word. Refresh us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to picture yourself doing this. Now listen carefully. You're at your home with your family on a cold winter night. The fire is crackling and you're all snuggled in your chairs and your couches enjoying a movie on TV that has all of you enraptured with high drama of the moment. It's the best movie you've ever seen. You are, you are caught up in, in, in the drama and the tension of the moment. Then just as the scene is reaching a crescendo, just as, you, just as it's really reaching the climax of what the whole plot is about, just when you're wondering, how is the hero going to get out of this situation? At that very moment, there is suddenly a break in the program with this announcement. We interrupt this program to give you this important news bulletin. While giving an inauguration message this evening at the Governor's Conference in Washington, D.C., shots are confirmed to have been fired at President Clinton. Unconfirmed sources tell us the President has been hit. We now go to a reporter who is at the scene. Now you may ask the question, Kimber, how in the world does that tie in with 1 Samuel chapter 28? It ties in perfectly because, I'll tell you in just a minute, hang on. Here's how it ties in. We were left in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Look what it says, 28, 1 and 2. Here's where we left off last week. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, then you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. That's where we were left. David because of an own unbelieving, discouraged heart, had fled to the land of the Philistines. He had buddied up with Achish, the arch enemy of Israel. And he said, and he'd gone out and fought fought battles and fought wars, and you can remember that he, he said he was going into Israel and fighting, when really he was fighting the enemies of the Lord. And now, my friends, Achish finally says, all right, buddy, now you're going to prove yourself. We're going to go fight Israel, and you're going with me. Now, David is in one big pickle. Here's why. If he goes and fights against Israel, you can forget about him ever becoming king. He will never be king if he goes to war against Israel. If he doesn't go to war, you can forget about him ever living because the Philistines are going to turn on him. He's caught. He's a, it's a catch-22. He's not sure what to do. Now, here's what happened. Right after chapter 28, 1 and 2, when you are left and this drama, what's David going to do? What's going to happen? Suddenly, guess what? We interrupt this program to bring you this special news bulletin. King Saul is in big trouble. The writer, if you were up late reading this book, you would get to 28, 1 and 2, and you'd be wondering, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And suddenly you get to verses 3 through 25. The rest of chapter 28 will not tell you the end of the story. In fact, chronologically, the story goes like this. 27, 1 through 28, 2. Stop. 29.1 29.1 comes next. 28.3 through 25 comes after chapter 29. 
the writer purposely inserts a chapter that is chronologically out of order to teach us a lesson about how to live the Christian life. He purposely does it. He shows you this. David is in trouble, but you can be in worse trouble than what David's in. Watch how this plays out in just a moment. Nobody would want to trade places with David, but if you had to choose between David and Saul, David's situation's a whole lot better. Now let's read our text, verses 3 through 7. Follow along as I read. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spirits from the land. The Philistines assembled and came to set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. Now, in verse 3, right after this high drama, the writer suddenly changes gears and tells you old information. Verse 3 is old information. Samuel was dead. We already knew that. We already read that earlier. We knew that Samuel did, but he reiterates it to make this story come alive. And he was buried in Ramah. And notice this, another little tidbit of information, the last part of verse 3. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spirits from the land. Here's what he's getting you to see. There's going to be a tension here. Samuel's dead. It means the prophet of God, the word of God coming through the prophet, that's no longer going to be there. And so, by the way, the mediums and the spirits Saul had long ago cast out of the land. Oh, just a little information for you to understand. That's setting up the story. Saul had done something good. Okay? And, and by the way, all through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are these warnings about this. Don't go to mediums and spirits. Spiritists, if you do, I will turn my face against you. You're turning against me if you go that direction. Don't do it. Now, the fact that uh, Saul regrets this and goes to find, to find a medium uh, shows you how far he has really fallen. Now look at verse 4. Now verse 4, I want you to notice a couple of things here. In verse 4, it's important that you would get a grip of where we are. Remember, the southwest corner of Israel is the land of the Philistines. Here's Gath, one of the five royal cities where Achish is from. And the text tells us that, the, look at this, way up north. By the way, this is the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee. It's just off of the map. But 17 miles as the crow flies is Shunem from the Sea of Galilee. It tells us something that's very drastic. If you were well, if you were an Israelite, you would be going, oh my goodness, things are really bad. Because the Philistines had pushed themselves way into the heartland of Canaan. They are way up here into the land of Shunan. Now, here he is. Shunan, 17 miles that direction is the Sea of Galilee. Now, they're way inland. You get the idea that Israel is weak at this moment and that there's lots of bad that could happen. Now, they're gathering there, and here's the, here's the northernmost city, by the way, of the Philistine city is Apec. They pushed all this direction farther in, into the land of the Philistines. And what happens is, they gather together for war, but this time Saul has a panic attack. You want to know what panic attacks are talked about in the Bible? Saul has one. Look at verse 5. It says in 28.5 this, When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid and terror filled his heart. There's a panic attack. And here's what happened. Shunan is getting into the plains. If I could show you a topographical map, this would help explain the text a lot better. Because topographically, Shunan shows you this. This is the plains 
Gilboa in Israel is where Saul is. Israel wants to fight in the hills. The Philistine wants to fight on the plains because they have the chariots. Chariots aren't much good for fighting in the hills, but chariots are plenty good for fighting in the plains. So, you see that he is trying to get into the area where they can fight on the plains. Saul is still over here in the hill country in Gilboa. That adds a little bit more to the story. But Saul looks down and he sees this massive Philistine army building up and he is terrified. And so what does a man do when he's terrified? Even a wicked man like Saul? Well, he inquires of the Lord. Look what happens, verse 6. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. Get this, by dreams, direct guidance. A dream is a dream. You have a dream. And God gives you direction. None of that was coming. Urim, that was where they would cast the lots. But he had killed all those priests. Remember, Abathar was with, was with David. Okay? He had killed all those guys. And then the prophets. And Samuel was dead and he resisted. Remember what he did? He resisted the school of the prophets. So you see that, that, that he, he's, he's far off here. And, and by the way, even though he is seeking the Lord, it seems in verse 6, Matthew Henry makes this comment, which might be right. He says, there is no way Saul was really seeking the Lord. Because if Saul was really seeking the Lord, he would never have had it in the back of his heart to say, and I'll go to the mediums if this doesn't work. So we get a real, starting to get a picture here of what Saul is doing. Now, by the way, you, you got to understand one other thing. Why do you think Saul was so upset? The last time he went to fight the Philistines, the wording is the same. 17.1, the story of David and Goliath, the wording is the same in 17.1 as it is right there in verse 5. And that is this, the Philistines are gathering for war against Israel. Last time, Saul had David, even though he didn't know about it. This time, he knows David's on the other side. So no wonder he's panicked. He's in big trouble. No, he inquires of the Lord, nothing happens. And then look at verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium. So may go and inquire of her. There's one in the door, they said. Now this also opens up something that's amazing, friends. Watch. Of course, Saul was supposed to have cast out all the mediums and spirits. It says, that's what the text says he did. But isn't it interesting that his royal advisors knew instantly where a medium was? Oh, that's very interesting. You know how I know that? The text says they answered immediately from their heart. He asked, I need to find a medium. And they go, oh, we know where one is. There's one in Endor. So they knew where this medium was. What is a medium? Is, is one who, uh, who uh, talks with the dead, uh, a spiritist, one who is basically a witch, one who deals with the dark side of things, one who is, the Bible says again and again, stay away from these people, they will destroy the land. It's something that's, that's very terrible. So look what Saul does, verses 8 through 10. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and the spirits from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. He is so desperate, he disguises himself in non-royal attire. He takes two men with him, which no king would ever do. You'd never go marching around the land at wartime just with two men. And never did he look so sorry. And yet he is going to a witch in Endor. Now look at something, everybody. Do you, do you notice, look, look at the, when you use your maps, look how it makes the Bible come alive. Watch what happens. He is in Gilboa. Here is the enemy at Shunem. And look where Endor is. Endor is just a mile or two away from Shunem where this massive Philistine buildup is. So Saul is so desperate that he actually takes a route that puts him even in more danger of the Philistines by going to the witch of Endor. This medium who lives 
at Endor. When he gets there at nighttime, the witch of Endor, this medium, sort of senses, you know, this might be a pagan bust. They may be trying to tra- entrapment here. They may try to catch me. And so she says, hey, wait a minute. You know the rules. Saul's throwing everybody. What are you coming to me for? And notice what he does. You talk about how orthodox you can be and just as wicked as the devil. Look what he says. He says in verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Here is typical, isn't it, of people showing the depravity of man. And that is he's going to swear by the name of the Lord while violating the command of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Now, with that in mind, let's go to verses 11 and 12. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. Now, friends, there's much to say at this, these two verses. I, I'm going to make it brief. He asked for Samuel, and she gets scared to death. Now, this text, I think there, there's several ways to take it. I'll tell you, you read seven commentaries on this text, you'll get seven different answers as to what was going on here. But I think the way for us to take it is that we take it literally. This is what happened. He went to a medium. She did her little hodgepodge of things, secretly little things, and she actually saw Samuel. Now, some great scholars, much greater than I, disagree with this. Matthew Henry, for instance, says there's no way that would, God would ever allow that because he's cursed the mediums. But the story carries with it a stamp of realism from Samuel's words. Um, and, and, and please remember this, that the Scripture describes such practices as not futile, but as pagan. Did you listen? Scripture describes mediums and witchcrafts and the dark side not as something that's impossible or something that's vain, but as something that is wicked. And it's not because they're fake, but because they're wicked. And Deuteronomy says it's wicked. And can God use wicked methods for his purposes? I suppose that's the main question to ask. And he certainly can if he wants to. He's God. And this would not be the rule, but the exception to the rule in which God may have allowed for this situation. Now, so I guess you're, I'm, I'm, basically I'm telling you this. I think this actually happened. All right. I think this actually happened. Could be wrong. Don't want to bet on it. Wouldn't sign on the dotted line for the rest of my life, but I think that this probably happened. Now, um, Notice what happens next, verses 13 and 14. She screams, and then notice this. That Saul is totally into this. The king said to her, don't be afraid, what do you see? Now, he's offering her words of comfort to continue her practice. And watch this. What do you see? I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. And what does it look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Now, I read it the way it probably impacted Saul. An old man wearing a robe. This is the robe that he tore when he rejected the Amalekite killing, remember? And he, he grabbed he, he grabbed after Samuel, and Samuel turned and tore his robe. You almost expect him to ask at this time, is there a tear in it? I mean, you almost expect that. He, an old man wearing a robe, intuitively, somehow, Samuel immediately, excuse me, Saul immediately knows that it's the real Samuel, that it's him. He says, don't be afraid. And Samuel falls prostrate on the ground, face down. And look at verse 15 now. Some of the saddest words ever written in the Old Testament. Look what he says. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now remember, at first she can see Samuel and then Saul can't. And now you get the idea that she may not be there. She seems to leave the room. I'll tell you, you'll see the text later. She seems to leave the room and now Samuel and Saul are having a conversation. Why have you disturbed me? And you get the impression again that he's irritated, that he's come from a life of restfulness. 
that he's enjoyed, and he, why, why are you disturbing me by interrupting me? And Samuel basically says in verse 15, I'm in big trouble, God won't help me, I want you to help me. That's basically verse 15. Now friends, just in case you were wondering whether or not this was real, here's a little bit more evidence. This sounds like the old Samuel we all know. But look what he says. He says the same things now that he said back in those days when he was alive on the earth, verses 16 through 19. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands. Remember that phrase, by the way? That's why I think the robe sets this thing up. Remember that when he tore the robe, he said he's torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand you over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Several things I want you to, to mention. Here is a rebuke, but please notice, in case you were wondering if Saul ever made it to heaven or not, I think this text is interesting because there's been a lot of debate among Christians as to whether or not Saul was a Christian. Verse 16 proves that at the end of his life, Saul was not a Christian or was not a, one of God's people. Look what it says in verse 16. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? Now, friends, there was some unusual evidence of the Spirit of God blessing Saul early in his life, but here the text says that now you're an enemy of God. An enemy of God doesn't go to heaven. We know that from vast amounts of Scripture. So here he is, you've become God's enemy and you've turned away from him. Now you may say, and then notice, by the way, the better one, remember Samuel had said to Saul many times in his life, God is turning the kingdom over to one better than you. Now the better one is specifically named. Look at verse 17. It says this, in, in 17, it says, The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Now all this time, Saul was so jealous, wondering if it was David. Now he knows unmistakably that it is David. And then you say, but Kim, how can you explain verse uh, 19 if you say that Saul didn't go to heaven? Because verse 19 says, The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Well, see, he's going to be with Samuel. Where's Samuel? Well, you see, this is just like when David's son died. David said, remember when David's son died after his illegitimate relationship with Bathsheba and their first son was born? And David's weeping and crying. And then they, they, they're afraid, that they said, if he won't eat and he's weeping and crying and he's been in this much torments when his son was sick, now that he's dead, what's he going to do? And they say, David, your son's dead. And he just gets up and, and he's fine. And he says, I, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. David's not talking about heaven. People use that as a text where babies go to heaven. That's a whole other argument, but don't use that text. Because that's what that not, what David is saying there is this. You can't go from death back into this life, but you can go from this life back to death. Or, I mean, to death. And what is being said here is this. You're going to be in the state of the dead as I have been, is what he's, what he's being said there. So don't, don't confuse heaven with that. So then let's move on to verses 20 and forward to finish this chapter up. Immediately, and by the way, just in case you want to know, if, if Samuel had given Saul any indication that he was going to be in heaven... Saul wouldn't have that much to grieve over. But look at verse 20. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, fear filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he did nothing all day and night. And when the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, see now she seems to come back. She seems to come back into this thing. She said, look, your maidservant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. She, she realized that he didn't get the message he wanted. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so that you may eat and have strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. 
But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. And here's the last meal of King Saul. Now get this. The Scriptures are so clear. The last meal is eaten in the house of a witch. Look what it says. The woman had a fatted calf at the house. And archaeological discoveries, by the way, you read that, a fatted calf at the house, what would you be doing with a fatted calf at your house? But archaeological discoveries have found that your living room was right next door to the stall. may not have smelled so good, but it was convenient for butchering. She goes right over into the stall, and she butchers this. This took a long time. This took many hours. She butchers this calf, and it's a meal fit for a king, a dying king. And she gives him his last meal. It's a delicacy. And he eats the fatted calf and notice something else. Verse 25, Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night they got up and left. I'm just wondering. This is a little bit mystical, but I'm just wondering. Is this phrase, Saul goes up and leaves at night, very similar to where Judas Iscariot leaves Jesus Christ, and it was night. You get that same sense of doom. This whole text, let me tell you, if you've worked with it all week, one thing you'll find is this is a text of doom. This is a text of sadness. This is a text of grief. There, there is not much to rejoice in in that text. So you may say, well, Kim, if there's not much to rejoice in, what can we possibly get out of it? Well, let's try. First off, we know this. We know from all Scripture is given by inspiration of God to correct us, to teach us, to warn us, to help us. It's to keep us in hope and it's to keep us persevering. So now that we've just done a quick job explaining that text, let's try to apply it now to our lives. Four things I want to say in regards to this. I'll try to make them quick. But this first one is really interesting. This passage speaks directly to those who plan on living for themselves their whole life and then have a deathbed conversion to Christ. Now this is very interesting, and I would not have come from this if it hadn't for a Bible study that I'm teaching on Thursdays in which I'm dealing with a lot of people that I think are not Christians. And one of the main questions I'm starting to realize is this. We get asked this constantly at those Bible studies. It goes like this. In fact, this is, this is not just at that Bible study. It's in any place where you're dealing with people that aren't Christians. It goes like this. You mean to tell me, I, I preached, for instance, last week on justification by faith. And you get this kind of question. Do you mean to tell me that I could live my whole life just being as wicked and ungodly as I could possibly be? And then just as I'm about to die, I could cry out and I could say, oh God, forgive me. And, and he will. And of course, one of the standard answers is yes, the thief on the cross did that. The thief on the cross was a thief. That's why he was on the cross. And he even said, we're, we're here because we deserve to be here. But this man has done nothing. And so obviously justification, Adolf Hitler, as bad as he has been, you've got to know, Adolf Hitler's badness could not match Christ's goodness. Now I'm not saying that Adolf Hitler went to heaven. Don't anyone ever please say that about what I'm saying here. But I am saying that if Adolf Hitler truly repented of his sins and threw himself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's mercy is bigger than the worst of all the bad men that have ever lived. But what I am telling you is this, that we must be careful. We can look at the thief on the cross as one example. We can look at Saul as another. Because Saul is a warning for those people that say, you know, I'm just going to live my life for myself. All through Saul's life, with the exception of a couple of chapters uh, where you know, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, you see Saul living for himself. Saul the Antichrist is what he is. He's a Saul out to kill the anointed of Israel. He's a Saul that doesn't care about God's people. He wipes out the priests. He kills 85 priests. He's a Saul that's living for himself. And now, the, the, the thing we want you to know is what it says in the book of Hebrews. If we deliberately keep on sinning, 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but a fearful expectation of judgment of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. Ralph Davis makes this comment. You did not listen. That is the explanation of Yahweh's absence when Saul needed him. That he would not listen. He would not obey. And listen to what he says. This is so good. The text is not gentle, but it is clear. If you despise God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. How crucial then are one's first responses to the gospel to the initial call to enter the kingdom. Spurgeon tells of a man on his deathbed who sent for him, and in his lifetime the man had jeered at Spurgeon, had often denounced him as a hypocrite. Now in desperation and death he called for him. Of this instance and of this man, Spurgeon wrote the following. Listen. He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony, he had superstitiously sent for me. Too late, he sighed for the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter in at the closed door. He was not able. There was no space left for him for repentance. For he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted him. And Spurgeon tells the story of a man who died and went to hell because he had ample opportunity to repent early in his life and he would not. My friends, in teaching unchurched people, and even in dealing with people who may be listening to me at this very hour, I must ask you this question. If you're thinking about repenting on your deathbed, please listen. If you think that you can live for yourself, because behind the scenes thinking of such a, of such a person, it goes like this. You know, I want to get all that I can. I want to go for the gusto. I want to get away with as much as I possibly can. And then I want to repent and get into heaven. In other words, you want the best of both worlds. Well, my friends, that was Saul's opinion here. Saul, unmistakably, is now an enemy of God. The text is very clear on that. And you know what? It's too late for him. God's mercy endures forever upon those who fear Him. And God's mercy is great to the unregenerate, to the lost, to the enemies of God. But there is a day when you have hardened your heart that God hardens His heart towards you. That's not popular teaching this day, but yet it is true according to the Scriptures. And those that have such a philosophy are really rejecting the Lord. And here's the thing. If you want to reject the Lord when you're happy, be ready because He may reject you when you're unhappy. And please keep that in your mind. That's application number one. We can go a long way on that. Second thing I want you to see is this. Christian, this passage is written to help you keep your problems in their biblical perspective. This is going to be a good one. The first one was really for people that aren't sure if they're Christians, but this one is one for you to please pay attention. This problem was written way back then. Now watch this. Watch how the t- this is really... In fact, if you want to know the main hermeneutic of this text, this is it. Sure, David has big problems. He's caught. If he goes to war, he'll never be king of Israel. If he doesn't go to war, he's about to get killed by the Philistines. And so David's in big trouble. So you may stop there and you think, but what's going to happen? And you may be like David. You may be in a dark hour. You may be in great fear. You may be at one of your worst moments in your life. But there's one big difference that this text wants to show you. That's why he interrupts this program at this time. And the text is this. We all have problems. But how much better it is to have problems with God than to be lost in your problems without God. 
That's what the writer wants you to see. Now, now please listen. What could be worse? To know that you need to repent and you can't repent. How, how horribly solemn. The most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. What could be worse? You think you have problems. Please, please stop and think about this. Have you ever thanked the Lord recently, Christian brother or sister, that you have the privilege to repent? Have you done that? Have you thanked the Lord that you still can be forgiven? Have you thanked the Lord that though you have blown it, David blew it. If you weren't here, you need to study the 27th chapter. In the 27th chapter, he blew it. So it's here, you have two men that have blown it. But the difference is this. One man still has God and the other man doesn't. Now friends, we need to hear this in our society today. The most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. Now remember, the writer has purposely set these two stories side by side for a reason. This is why if you're a Christian and you have confidence that the Lord is in your life, and that His mercy endures forever upon those who fear Him. That you can rejoice in all things. This is why you can give thanks at all times. This is why you can count it all joy, my friends. Because no matter how dark the valley of the shadow of death gets, you can fear no evil. For you are with me. David knew this. David knew that no matter how dark the valley of the shadow of death gets, God was with him. Saul, listen friends, Saul didn't have God, and the valley of the shadow of death was no promise that God was with him. God had forsaken him. In fact, I want you to see something. You're right there in 28. Go to chapter 30 real quickly. Just flip over to chapter 30 and look at verse 1. Look what happens here. David and his men reached Ziklag. Now remember this, by the way, remember 29 comes chronologically after 28. Now this is when you'll have to find out the rest of the story. David gets delivered because some of the generals in Achish's army says, hey, we're not going to have him go with us. No way, get him out of here. And so he gets him out of there, and David and his men go back to Ziklag. By the way, do you remember where Ziklag is? That was the town that Achish had given him. If you were with us in the last chapter, do you remember that? Watch what happens here. Here they are up in this area, and they're about to go to battle, and David is in a real pickle. And then David and his men come back to Ziklag, all the way down here. He comes all the way back to Ziklag, and watch what happens. He says, Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziklag, and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it. They had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, their wives, their sons, and their daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoham of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Now watch this. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. What a difference! Listen, David, his own men, these 600 men, they're going to kill him. We are so sick of this guy, he could have wiped out Saul a couple of times. Now here we are, now we've come back and all of our wives and children are stolen. And now the Philistines may not be for us, and now Saul's still against us, and they're all bitter and enraged, and they say, let's kill him. And David's own men are thinking of killing David, but we know what David does when he's in that kind of situation? Is Does he fear and go seek mediums? Does he No, he immediately goes and finds strength in the Lord his God. And my friends, there's the difference between David and Saul. There's the, a huge difference. One has God and one doesn't. And what are we talking about? We're talking about facing problems. Now look at this. Look here. We're talking about Christian. This was written to help you in your problems. When, when you've got problems, stop and think about it. No matter how bad it gets, please listen, please listen. This is the heart and soul of Christianity. 
No matter how bad your life gets, no matter how many troubles come your way, no matter how difficult it gets, you're not going to hell. That's something to rejoice in. It seems to me there's an unbelieving heart in many Christians. You say that you trust Christ, but your problems pile up and you just go, oh me, oh my, it just couldn't be bad. I don't even know why I should even live. What's the purpose of it all? Hey, the purpose of it all is God gets the glory from your life and let's live for Him with all of our hearts because as bad as it can get, it can't be that bad because we know the end of the story. We're not going to go to hell. Thank goodness for the great mercy of Jesus Christ. Not because we're good people, but because of His mercy. You're not going to hell. Jesus promised this. He would never leave you nor forsake you. There was Saul. That promise that Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, is a promise to His people. Not a promise to the enemies of God. You see, there is life after this one, and it's so important to know that. And people say, sometimes with a little whine in their voice, well, you know, always remember, there's someone worse off than you are. And you know, you heard the poem, I, I complained because I had no shoes until I met a man that had no feet. Remember that? We hear all of that, but somehow we still seem to lose perspective. There is something, the writer wants you to see something here. The writer wants you to see there is something far worse than being in a severe jam like David was in. And that is to be without God. To be without God is the worst place to be in all of life. And I guess the question then that the text would beg me to ask you as the pastor of this church is this, do you have God? Do you know that you have God? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Have you come to drink of the fountain of the Lord Jesus Christ to know without a doubt that you would be nothing without Him, but with Him you have all things? Do you understand that? My Christian friend, this is the point. The Gospel is in the heart of this. No matter how bad you're suffering, no matter how bad you're moaning, the one big question asked is this, has God turned away from me? Because if God has not turned away from you, then you don't have to worry. I don't have to worry. We can take great heart. A third thing this does, and I want to make this one very quick because it really the, the second and the fourth points tie in together, and I'm out of time again, but I want you to see something. Point three is this. This passage warns us that you can fight against sin and even be orthodox in your theology and still not be living for the glory of God. I want to just make this comment quickly. Saul throws the mediums and the spirits out of the land. Saul then goes to the mediums and says, I swear by the name of the Lord, very orthodox, that you'll not die. My friends, I just mean to say this. Saul will drive the devil out of his kingdom and yet harbor him in his heart. Do you hear that? I know of Christians, they think if you're not fighting against abortion clinics that you're awful. They think if you're not doing something political, you're awful. They think if you're not doing all these things, you're awful. I just want to say this question says you can be orthodox and you can even fight against sin and still not be converted. Did you hear me? Please listen. I know of Christians, and it seems as, one quote is, no, no ungodly man hates one sin any more than it, when it crosses another. And one of the things that we need to remember, friends, is this. You can fight all of these things before all of these causes, and you can still not be regenerate because the apostle, or not the apostle Saul, but King Saul is the testimony. Okay, the last thing I want to get to, it ties in with point four, is this. Saul's heart is revealed, and the question for the hour then is this. Are you living for yourself or God's glory? You say, Kim, what, uh, we please explain, what are you talking about? Well, this, my friends, listen. The, the key to 1 Samuel is chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, which says the Lord looks not as man looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. And the thing that I, you need to know here, my friends, is this. Saul, now listen carefully, Saul wanted blessings more than the blesser. He wanted information and not communion. He wanted direction and not fellowship. He uses the Lord's name but doesn't care about the Lord's cause. He's orthodox, and yet he's disobedient. He's more concerned with guidance than with knowing the guide. He's more concerned about personal direction than he is about living for the glory of God. David is the very opposite. 
David, if you remember in 1 Samuel 26, one of his cries just a few chapters back is, Saul, why are you chasing me around? You're keeping me away from worshiping God. David's biggest concern about being out in the wilderness was not that he was tired of being in the wilderness, but that he couldn't worship God. You can't see the stark reality of the difference between a regenerate and unregenerate heart in this text. Saul cares about himself. David cares about God. Saul cares about God as long as it means that what God will do for him. David cares about God because David loves God. Do you see it? I hope you see it. In Psalm 63, David says, Oh, my, my heart and my soul cry out for the living God. When can I go and meet God? You would never in a million years hear Saul say that because the heart of the unregenerate does not love God. The heart of the regenerate loves God and wants to be with God and says, Oh, God, I, I, no, and isn't, doesn't this get you? Doesn't this just encourage the socks off you, my friends? Listen, David sins. I'm not saying you've got to live a holy, perfect life or else you're not, you, you have no confidence that you're a Christian. You know, I can't tell you that from David's life, right? And you also know that I can't tell you that from your life. Am I right? But my friends, we're not talking then about perfection. That's taken up between, that's why Christ was perfect. We're talking about the greatness of God's love for His people and the true sign of one who really knows the Lord is that He has a great love for God. He longs to know God. He wants to be with God. The man of God is after the heart of God. The songwriter said, once it was the blessing I was after, but now it is the Lord that I'm after. And we live in a day and an age, and I, and I hate to sound so spiteful, but if you turn on channel 40 or channel 42 or whatever channel it is on your TV station, and you watch the, the most of the hogwash that comes over the airways, and you're going to see a bunch of people telling you how to get blessings from God. But you're not going to see many people that are telling you how much they love the blesser. And one of the big questions of this hour is the, the stark reality is that Saul keeps trying to use God, then live for God. Stop and think about it in regards to prayer and devotions. If you have your prayer and devotions in order to get some blessing from God, I did. I did in my early days and still do at times. And that is, you know, something big's coming up, so I gotta be extra close to God so He'll bless me when I do that. You know, oh, I, I remember thinking, this is so corny, I hate to reveal it to you, but I remember thinking when I was playing basketball in college, what if I got to the line tonight and there was several thousand people watching and I had the ball in my hands and the score was, we were down by one, I had hit two free throws. If I didn't have devotions, I may not hit them. I better make sure that I had my devotions so I could hit those. You see. And we think thoughts like that. But you see, and, and by the way, in that kind of juvenile thinking, can I tell you God is great in His mercy? So don't get too discouraged. Because He's great in His mercy even towards that kind of juvenile thinking that I've often practiced in my life. But I'll fr- tell you, friends, we should not just be after guidance and direction. Listen, wisdom, guidance, direction is a byproduct of knowing God. Did you hear me? Wisdom, guidance, and direction is a byproduct of knowing God. If Saul knew God, he would have known what to do. Are you with me? We got today, people want books. Oh, give me a book. I got to find out God's will for my life. Give me a book quick. What should I do, Pastor? What should I do? You know what we need to do is we need to know God. We need to know who God is. And as we get to know God and we pray for His glory, it makes all the difference in the world. Listen, faced with God's absence, the true believer is concerned with God's absence rather than the lack of insight or direction. Are you listening? A true believer will experience times of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even Jesus Christ faced that. We'll face times when God doesn't seem to be there, but the true believer will be concerned about that rather than just concerned about what God can do for them. This ought to cut to the quick. You're talking about cutting into the heart of Phariseeism. This chapter certainly does it. And so, friends, we've had a lot to think about today. And I hope that this will help us. As my friend told me the other day, we need to teach people not just to 
know the Word, but we need to teach them to observe it. And you know, friends, this is so much for us to think about. I hope you got it. I raced through it, but I hope you got it. God bless you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I'm so convicted by this message. I'm just very convicted myself. Father, I would ask you to forgive me for how many times in my life I've used you rather than loved you. Father, would you give me a heart that would love you? We want a church here full of Davids. We'll be so merciful when we sin like David because you were merciful to David. But we don't want to be Saul's. We don't want to be Saul's. Make us really love you. Make us go to church for your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. God richly bless you. I needed, I'd sing a song. It would probably be the most appropriate thing to do, but we're, we're out of time. I'm sorry about that. So you'll have to go without a song. You're dismissed. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.